Okay, these are both recording. Okay. Hello, my name is Grace, and I will be having a conversation with Hannah for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 22nd, 2017, and this is being recorded at New York Public Libraries Manhattan location with the Lions. Um, so thank you for coming, Hannah. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your childhood and what your life was like growing up? So I grew up in a suburban, generally middle-class home in New Jersey, and it was a, I'm very privileged to say, a loving and supportive family. I think I knew from a very young age that I was different, and I looked at daytime TV talk shows and saw maybe not the best representations of gender identity and its diversity, but the idea that something was out there that was different I, from a very young age, was wearing my sister's clothing. I probably destroyed the nicest stuff she ever had because I was a little bit bigger than her being two years older. And that's not really fair to her, but I didn't have many other outlets. My mom was way larger than I was physically and it wasn't going to fit into her things. And what I tell people about my upbringing that people don't always think about in terms of gender identity and transitioning is that I didn't fear coming out and telling my parents about this part of me because I thought they wouldn't support me. I actually thought that they would. I knew they would and that's what terrified me. And this is unique in terms of the perspectives people offer sometimes, but what I try to say is that, and the way I explain it, is I had three younger siblings and I knew that my parents would move heaven and earth, perhaps even my entire family to another city, if not state, for me to get the help that I needed and for me to live myself authentically as a female if that's what I decided to do because not that long ago, the idea of transitioning in your own school and your teachers getting used to it and your classmates being told to respect you and how you present yourself, that wasn't a thing. It was kind of like the kid who perhaps got pregnant in high school and was sent off somewhere and you didn't quite hear from them again. And that's what I feared would happen to me, only with my family taken for the ride too. And that's a lot to ask when you're somebody's big brother or big sibling, however I thought of myself to upend their lives, to disrupt their friendships and their growth for over something that I thought maybe I'd grow out of, something that I couldn't really say for sure was the right path for me because there wasn't as much information out there, especially about youth. So it took a lot of time for me, especially graduating high school, going off to college, being more on my own, where I was able to explore this and seriously consider it, where it wasn't going to be such an impact on my parents and my family, where they were also older and more able to handle it as well if it would. Because coming out for me is coming out for them too. I had to be prepared for that. And what I say about it is that it's hard to talk as a 32-year-old now and try to 
dissect my feelings as a child and fear especially is one that doesn't have to be rational to exist but I like to think that the general sentiment of opening Pandora's box and not being able to control the consequences of what that would have looked like, even if I would have been, I think, able to articulate what was going on with me, and I knew this, it was on the tip of my tongue so often, I was seeing a pediatric endocrinologist because I was growth hormone deficient already, and I knew that he was the one I would be asking about this kind of question. Well, actually, I wanna be a girl. Why are we trying to make me taller? It was on the tip of my tongue so many times that I could never bring up because I could not predict the outcome. And this could dramatically change the lives of my siblings, not only myself, and that was a big thing to ask of my family and a lot of attention that I, quite frankly, wasn't sure that I could command. And in retrospect, maybe it wouldn't have been that, but I like to think that having seen the experiences of other peers of mine who were able to transition earlier in life and how that turned out, I probably wasn't as far off base as I could have been. And I've been tremendously lucky moving forward with my life and my family now. My siblings are all through college. They were finishing up college as I was transitioning. My parents are empty nesters, but they're still in my life. And the acceptance of me as me, as Hannah, is unequivocal. I tell people my parents drive me bonkers, but in all the ways that a 32-year-old woman's parents should drive her bonkers. They want to see me successful. They want to see me independent. They want to see me doing good things in the world and bringing home a nice Jewish partner. The gender, they're, you know, still not sure what that will be and neither am I. And they probably want grandkids by now and they're getting a little impatient, not just from me, but also my three other siblings. So they drive me bonkers in all the good ways because if they didn't accept me for me unequivocally as the foundation of our relationship, they wouldn't be in my life to torment me. Exactly. Um, so it sounds like you're really close with your family and you were growing up. Do you want to talk about your relationship with your siblings? Oh, I have the three best siblings in the world. One of my sisters is a nurse down in Baltimore. Another is a teacher also in Maryland, closer to Annapolis. And my little brother works in data analytics in a hospital in Illinois. And I always joked about him because, you know, growing up he was part of the reason I also didn't transition earlier on. A lot of trans people have this experience of wanting to hyper-masculinize or feminize themselves within their assigned gender to try to remove it from their thought processes. This is something ingrained within you, but sometimes you think you can overpower it, you can compensate for it. And for a lot of trans women, that comes around their teens and they join the armed forces. And maybe they get really into athletics. Not that athletics is necessarily a male or female thing, but they get into the machismo aspect of it. And that's something that doesn't always pan out well in terms of them saying, well, this was just a compensatory measure. For me, it came at nine years old with my little brother. 
I had two sisters before then, and I was always wearing their clothing, even at this age. And then I had a brother, and I said, I need to man up. I'm going to try to be a boy so that I can have him share a bunk bed with me one day. I didn't quite realize at nine that he would come home, you know, an infant, and it would be... By the time he was old enough to share a bunk bed with me, I was old enough to not want bunk beds anymore. So that idea didn't pan out, although I did successfully nag my parents until they got me the bunk bed, which he never really actually slept on in the same room as me unless my grandmother came to visit and took his room. But that aside, <laughs> he was the kid who I always loved to watch as he, you know, revered me as his big brother, but then in time I got to be there and support and appreciate him. And sometimes he would do things always a little bit better than I did. I went to high school, of course, he went to high school and was salutatorian. Then I went to engineering school. He went to engineering school and got an amazing GPA. I started running marathons. He got into marathons and crushed them. I got him into swing dancing after I did. He's just this graceful, lanky, crazy human being on the dance floor. So I tell everybody, you know, everything I do, he does better. He's gonna make a beautiful woman one day. <laughs> and I think that's where we're gonna, <laughs> I don't think he'll get to that point. <laughs> and my other two sisters are also tremendously amazing and were there for me throughout all of this. And they've been able to take their experiences with me, my one sister as a nurse, and bring it into her practice and to help other peers of hers that she's met throughout her career and throughout her life. And my other sister as a teacher too is now really out there speaking up and saying that we need to protect students too, whoever they might be. Awesome. Do you have any specific memories of, um, I guess, gender growing up, like the messages you were receiving about gender, whether it's in your household or on TV or in the media? Like, do you have anything that stands out to you? Well, gender is tremendously pervasive growing up. As young as three years old, I still remember my mom would sort all of our laundry. She'd do it all together and then sort it out in the hampers and have like three hampers in front of her on the sofa with the laundry pile on the sofa next to her. And she'd toss things into each. And my thought was if I'm gonna steal a pair of my sister's tights, cause I really wanted to try tights on cause I saw all my friends who were female wearing tights and dresses. And I thought that must be the coolest thing cause all I could ever wear was pants or the occasional shorts. And I thought I have to take it out of the laundry and then try it on very discreetly and then bring it out to mom and say, mom, why did you put this in my hamper? And she kind of took it and just shoved it back in the other hamper. I think she bought it. And there was just this divide and that's what it was. And there was the divide in how the boys and the girls were split up in school. I ended up sometimes in the, in the class photo every year, standing by a lot of girls because there were a lot of grades, like I said, I was growth hormone deficient, where I was the shortest kid in the class of the boys or the girls, especially when they all hit their growth spurts and the boys were a little ahead of me too. And I had short parents, there was nothing I could do. I was this height before I was a woman. But... <laughs> I 
definitely felt the same pressures, the same internalized transphobia, the idea that cross-dressing was a bad thing, the idea that there was something not necessarily perverse and predatory the way the media and the conservatives today are trying to paint trans people, but more simply wrong, simply not in line with what it took to be a boy, especially when I was trying so hard to be a boy for my little brother and even for myself, because I thought, hey, if I can just feign this cisgender heteronormativity and be as typical a male as I can, then I can have a girlfriend. And if I can have a girlfriend, I can learn more about women and that'll help me if I ever do want to be one. But also I'll probably not want to be one because I'll be happy just having a girlfriend like all the other boys in my class. Except I never really had a girlfriend because I was a dork and a little bit of a loud mouth and obnoxious and I tended to overanalyze things, which hasn't really changed. So you said you were a dork. Were there any sorts of media or books that kind of got you through growing up? Well, it's funny actually because I was a Trekkie growing up addicted to Star Trek. I started watching it while spoon-fed basically by my mother during reruns of The Next Generation when it came out in 1987. I was born in 84, so I was right in that age where this is what she was watching at night, so that's what I was watching too. And then I got later into the syndication of the older things from before I was born, and then came right up into adolescence with the later spin-offs. And it was interesting because in my school, this was also around the same time middle school, that the new prequels were coming out for Star Wars, and there were a lot of Star Wars fans in my class. One of them liked to tease me a lot. And it's funny because this person would always say to me, die Trekkie scum. They were my bully. And it wasn't anything to do with how I identified other than being a Trekkie versus a Star Wars fan. Now what I really kind of retroactively wish is that I had taken some of my issues and projected them and been like, well, you have gender identity issues, so you should talk. And the reason I say I wish I had, even though I would never have intentionally done harm to somebody, but I would have inadvertently crushed this person because it turned out that this particular individual in my class, I found out about 10 years later, had also transitioned and she now identifies as a beautiful female out on the West Coast. So I would have inadvertently crushed her and maybe that would have helped a little bit through middle school, obviously at her expense, but I would never have done it if I would known maybe we could have been there to help each other through this in a positive way rather than tearing each other apart. But we were so repressed within our own identities that we came up with a lot of sillier things to argue about. I also didn't realize just how many closeted Trekkies there were in my high school who never wanted to talk about liking it while I was out there. Mm -hmm. So in middle and high school, did you feel bullied frequently? Was that an experience that you had? Oh, I was bullied very much in elementary and middle school, mostly for being the shortest kid in the class, kind of the puny kid who wasn't very good at sports and had a bit of a loud mouth wanted to be the class clown, didn't always think that, or didn't always know where and when. I'll admit that I was not the most, I was very intelligent and I hopefully retained some of that into my adulthood, but I wasn't always the most 
attentive to all of the social cues and it didn't help, like I said, being short. And then in high school, that continued to the point where I was bullied a lot by some of the girls, actually. They now call it in the educational settings the Queen Bee Syndrome, and there are these girls who liked to pretend that they loved me and said really dirty things to me about things they wanted to do, which I didn't even understand how girls could do yet. And it's hard to explain to my 16-year-old self gender identity issues aside internally how to properly process sexual attention and know what's good versus baloney. I thought they actually liked me, so I tried to reciprocate and became the butt of a lot of jokes and even fell under the administration's eye because somebody turned around and said, why are you harassing these girls who built me up to begin with? So that required a lot of time, energy, and visits to school, san or not school sanctions, school supplied therapists to unpack. And in the end, they realized, in the administrative level at least, that a lot of it was baloney because the students, especially one in particular who was claiming that I was so annoying and this person didn't want to be around me at all, she made herself, we caught her basically placing herself in a position where she knew I would be, where she had no business being because we had a similar class with the same teacher in different periods and I was to go to mine, she was to go to hers, and I saw her in the room in mine when, I was not, when she was not supposed to be there, and I said, you know, to the school, I cannot have an education if this person is complaining about me harassing her and placing herself where I am supposed to be. And then the whole thing kind of fizzled away, but the damage, at least to my social life, was done. Did you have any close friends growing up? I had a lot of close friends. They didn't always go to the same high school as I did, which became terrible around prom. Especially when you find out that your date who went to private school or the person you did ask to go to prom, a girl in this case, found out that her brother's, her older brother's high school commencement, college, excuse me, college commencement was the same weekend. So she couldn't go and you end up dancing mostly with the school nurse. But that aside, no, I had some amazing close friends. I'm still in contact with a handful of people from high school and when I do travel around the country for public speaking I make a point to reach out and like I said the beauty of anybody in high school is that we grow up and I went back to my 10-year high school reunion I was the one who came back as a woman you kind of always hear about that oh yeah this person's successful this person has kids this person's off traveling the world and this one's a woman now i was that one and generally it went over fine people were a little bit confused so i wrote out a name tag and explained precisely what was going on and there was really only one person who decided to be a jerk about it everyone else was like hey great to see you glad you're and i don't like to say trans being trans makes you happy they always say oh glad you're happy it doesn't make me happy it makes me me and then gives me the chance to pursue happiness with any possibility of success. But from somebody else, without training them specifically on this, which I do now, hey, glad you're happy is okay, I'll take it.
Was, were there any activities you did in high school, any organizations you were involved with or anything like that, you know, music? Oh, I was in lots of things in high school, mm-hmm. actually. I was in the marching band after school. I was in the choir for all four years. I was the most improved senior. And I was also in the dramas and the musicals. I mostly did backstage things and constructed the programs. So I was hunting everybody down for their bio and fiddling with the very early digital cameras to take the first in-program headshots that the school had ever had. I really tried to up our game a little bit with the programs and took it on myself and made this really nice program that got professionally printed out and then left on the floor at the end of the show. All the little thankless jobs. That's kind of where I fit in and found my niche. And occasionally something cool happened. I was part of the academic decathlon team and we had to do a timed essay as part of the 10 exams we did throughout the day. And I did this timed essay on overfishing and won a gold medal in the States. I took AP classes. I was involved with all kinds of stuff and I did make friends through those. And it wasn't to say that it was compensatory for any gender identity issues, but that was always on the front of my mind is, you know, could I be a girl and still do all of this? And I would dress up in women's clothing, whatever I could scrounge from my sister that I'd stolen that day out of her drawers or whatever I'd had the guts to order online and have delivered to my house, or I'd found at a rummage sale and picked up when nobody was looking. It all just felt illicit. And whenever I had, I would get fully dressed up before school in the morning, get ready to walk out the door of my room and get ready to go to school, whether it was my parents driving me or me driving myself later on as a senior. But no, I'd go back in and I'd change. And I'd put on my boy clothing, usually whatever I wore yesterday. I wasn't the most hygienic back then. I don't think any high schoolers are. And get on with my day. I think I was more hygienic about my girl clothing because I didn't wear it as much. I just wore it a lot of times for a minute or two, so it stayed pretty clean. Was there anyone that you spoke to about that? My sister was the only person I knew, uh, sorry, who knew about me being trans or something, even if I didn't quite understand it. I think I told her first when I was about 14 and she was 12, because she kind of noticed I was wearing some of her stuff. And I was like, I don't know why I'm wearing it, but like, it's cool and it's different than boys clothing. And next time we go to Old Navy, if I give you cash, can you go to the checkout line and buy a skirt that's a size or two bigger than you are for me? That way I don't have to wear your stuff and my stuff will actually fit me. And she kind of bought into it. I didn't have to coax her as much as I expected to. And then around age 18, I was about to go off to college and I said, you know, at some point, I think I'm gonna be your sister. And she was 16 and she was kind of getting into this, you know, feminism spurt and was like, okay, I don't really know much beyond that because I'm 16 and you're my big whatever, but yeah, this doesn't seem new to me and it's probably a thing because the other thing is that growing up there was not the information there is now. There was also not the media to dispense that information through. I tell people I played with digital cameras in high school. I know that sounds kind of cliche now because every millennial has how many of them in their phone in their 
whatever else that takes pictures. But I didn't have a digital camera really worth its salt until college. I got my first little pocket digital camera that was any good and really rivaled film at the time. And before that, everything was film pictures. I never took pictures because I knew Growing up, I was cross-dressing all the time in my parents' mirror, this big wall of mirrors on the closet doors across their bedroom. I'd go in there when nobody was home because everybody was at sports or something else. My parents were soccer moms and dads and whatever other things my siblings were at. Not me too, but on certain days I was home alone and I knew what times they'd be back. And I would take these long times to pose in front of these mirrors, but would never take a picture. I mean, there was such a thing as like a rear camera so you could see what you were taking, but even still, I knew that the one hour Photoshop in town had this conveyor belt that went all up and down the sides of the counter with the desk and the register, where all the photos came up out of the developing machine, up around the top and down into the envelopes. And when I was a kid, we used to count how many of ourselves we saw. Hey, look, that's me, but I saw myself twice and it was a competition when we got the pictures back from the beach or Disney World of how many times we were the star of the picture. Maybe it was a group shot, those didn't count. So, I was worried somebody would have to develop these, somebody would see these. So now today we have these two things that came up almost simultaneously, which was digital cameras, by which you can basically take pictures and show them to nobody, not to mention instantly see them yourself without anybody else ever intervening. But at the same time, you can also put them on YouTube and show them to everybody. So all of a sudden there's such a larger narrative and foundation of narratives, including this public library project here in New York, of trans discussion and conversation about what it's like to be and of seeing people go through successful both physical and social transitions. Because when I was going up on AOL and hearing the dee dee da 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 and typing in transgender, maybe, or transsexual perhaps back then, this is not that long ago, or Harold Benjamin syndrome, which was kind of the code word for it because he was one of the pioneers in the development of transition protocols that one could use as a doctor that got surplus or replaced by the World Professional Association on Transgender Health, the WPATH, but they used to be called the Harold Benjamin Standards. I digress. My point is you saw these narratives, these one-page GeoCities web blogs, and I'm not saying blogs, web logs, they weren't called blogs yet, of older individuals, at least older than me, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, who were saying, I have to be a woman now, and this is gonna destroy my marriage, my kids aren't talking to me, and my wife, and I was mostly looking at trans women, so they were usually married to a woman as a cisgender heterosexual couple, doesn't know what the heck to do with me at all. And my promise to myself was that I'm not going to let myself get to that point, that I'm not going to drag another soul into what is tormenting my soul. And that was a promise I tried to make to myself and thank God I've been able to generally keep. 
At the same time, what I also realized is that gender identity is a time bomb within yourself, that you will continue to masculinize or feminize as per your body's assignment, regardless of what your gender within yourself happens to be, if you don't intervene. And I feared getting older, and I feared a lot that it was too late. Well, I already have a beard. Can I get rid of it? And I didn't know all the options I had. I already have hairy legs. I already have this skeletal structure. And will I even look presentable as a female? And vice versa, a trans man might think the same if they have the body parts that they're developing as a female-bodied person or female-assigned person. And it's terrifying. So it took a lot of time and honestly, it took a lot of the people a little bit younger than me who were putting up everything on YouTube as if it was always there because it wasn't for me and me seeing those narratives and then saying, hey, wait a second, if this 20-year-old can do it, why the hell am I not doing it at 25? I damn well better or there's not gonna be anything left of me by 30. And I did and thankfully there was and there is and it's not the 30 that I thought that I'd be at. It's not the 30 I wasn't sure if I'd make it to. It's the 30 where I'm a generally well-adjusted, generally accepted, thriving and somewhat outspoken young woman. And I'm lucky enough to say that my mom is pretty proud of the strong Jewish woman she raised for a son. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in hearing more about your relationship to YouTube and the internet. You know, you're someone who was alive for this big shift from the modem to social media now. And like, how has that shaped? You've spoken a little bit about transition videos on YouTube, but do you have more um, to say about that? Well, it's kind of the motto I've taken on now that not hiding my past will help somebody else to stop hiding their future. But the visibility the media offers and also the media's insatiable appetite to jump the shark is part of what's bringing transgender issues to the national conversation. And that could not have happened anywhere near this fast or with this much positive pressure upon the world and positive representations to counteract the vocal minority of negative impressions and hypotheticals and fear-mongering that's out there. And this is because we can disseminate these pictures, these movies, these stories. And like I said, you know, it started out when I was watching television growing up, the trans person was kind of a novelty and TV shows were trying to equalize themselves in terms of race. So you had, you know, Full House at eight o'clock on TGIF, and then you had Family Matters, the Blacks that come on at 8.30. And you started to pick up that they were trying to balance these things. And then they tried to do more female leads, and then they tried to introduce gay characters. And then all of a sudden, and I kind of say this very tongue-in-cheekly and Jokingly, I say, you know, for example, the TV show Glee kind of beat the gay to death. Not in the any way violent way of beating a gay person, but in the they explored so many gay plot lines that they made it hard for themselves to come up with something that was novel 
and rather, oh my gosh, this show has six gay characters within the main and recurring cast. We're gonna put a seventh in? No, they started delving into trans issues and one trans person wasn't enough. And then came two trans people and possibly more. And then the show ended with a lot of other circumstances around that, which I know were external to anything to do with trans, but merely to show that the gay thing was not new anymore and the media was looking for a new story to tell. I don't know where it's going to go necessarily beyond trans, except right now we're in this little window where there's a beautiful spotlight for intersex and non-binary people, where we're really starting to delve into the stories of people who don't see themselves as male or as female, who don't see themselves within these artificial and sometimes arbitrary constructs, irregardless of what their bodies might lead someone to think just looking at them. And I think that's really beautiful, and I think there's so many parallels to it that the media can let us see, but sometimes also suppresses. You know, I tell people, I was doing a talk yesterday, and I was explaining that there are as many genders as there are political parties in this country. Two make a hell of a lot of noise, and the rest struggle to be taken seriously. And I think that's a great analogy, and if you meet somebody who's part of one of those other parties, it isn't necessarily right for you to call them undecided. Oh, you're just gonna eventually have to pick one of the major two candidates or you're wasting your proverbial vote or existence. And we don't wanna call them confused. Some of those people can be the most literate and educated on the issues that I've ever met. Some of those people can be phenomenally intelligent and have a different set of beliefs to myself. We call them independent. We call them third party, or even within the constructs of these two big tents that we have, there's seldom consensus and there's lots of infighting. You don't know everything about women by dating a single one. You don't know everything about men by dating a single one. Well, maybe you do, but the fact that you're laughing as I say that implies how ludicrous the statement is and even the stereotypes. And I love that right now we're exploring that non-binary space. I don't really know where the media is going to go next with any of that and what they're going to do when trans stories become cliche and part of the regular mix-up of a discussion or a sitcom or a presentation. I, I think there are people in the polyamorous community who would love to see their stories told of multiple relationships that were based upon trust, understanding, and equity of power. On the other hand, I think there's so much indentured, not indentured, but um, built up of stories based upon multiple relationships that were everything but, that I almost wonder how to do that without making them boring. Mm -hmm. But I leave the polyamorous people to take control of their narrative and I can't wait to see how they tell beautiful stories about their lives because I'm being in the trans community and in the geeky community and in the 
secular Jewish community where I intersect with so many different circles, people in all of these non-traditional relationships are also within those circles. And I get to hear stories, I get invited into homes where there are different parenting strategies and family structures. And the beauty of a family is a beautiful family, whatever shape and size it takes. So I can't wait to see all of those things and I'm just here to tell my little end of the tale. Yeah. So you've mentioned your Jewish upbringing and being a Jewish woman now. Were you raised secular or were you raised in a Jewish tradition with religion? I was raised in a secular household that was involved within our Jewish community. So a lot of the general line is drawn around, do you observe the Sabbath and the dietary laws? The answer is no. But did I believe, so to speak, in a God that is big and beautiful and wants us to draw closer to itself? And for God, I kind of play around with pronouns. Itself, themself. Sometimes I'll say himself for simplicity, but I would never try to imply that God is necessarily male or should be seen solely as such. I see God as all of those other things. And what I love about Judaism and our religion is that we teach people to not only understand, but to question. And there's there's an appreciation within Judaism that in a sense, the commentary, so the Torah being the book and then the Talmud being the writings on the oral law that commentates on it and explains us how to follow it. And then the commentaries on the commentaries and the commentaries on the commentaries on the commentaries never stopped to this day so that everything I write in a sense can be almost as valid as anything of our sages. And what I love about it is that we never stopped writing. And I use this as an example when I teach about trans issues because I say, look at our Bible. And in the Bible, you have this one group of animals, crustaceans, so your shrimps, your crabs, and lobsters, described as shellfish. And you have this other class of animals, cetaceans, so your whales, your dolphins, your porpoises, described as big fish. Now, what are neither of these two animals? Actually, what we call a fish. So if you're calling everything a fish, you're kind of doing a disservice to yourself and maybe to a limited extent of a conversation that could be sufficient. But like I said, we never stopped. So we kept writing books, we kept learning. We and the Judeo-Christian tradition are not the only reason, but part of why we're sitting here in a public library in some of the most prime real estate in New York. Because books matter and writing matters and there's so much more in this world to describe that I believe our big and beautiful creator gave us the power and expects us to do with our free will and our inspirations and our passions and how to direct those for good. So I tell people that today, seeing only male and female as God created is seeing only fish. It doesn't invalidate the existence of male or as female or of fish, but if we call everything a fish or we think there can only be fish, we're missing out on a much bigger and more exciting picture. And that's not the direction that I think our God wants us to go as 
that God's creations. I think there's a different direction we need to go, both in terms of learning to be more boundless in our loving and our appreciation and our embrace of one another, which in itself is a worship of God and heaven above, but also in being stewards of the world that we were given to protect these animals, to protect these diverse creations, whatever species or gender they happen to be. And if you can see more of them, you can do the right thing by all of them. If you call everything fish, you can't protect the whales. Right. So I want to backtrack a little, get back to, we were talking about your life in high school. Um, (laughs) um, And I was wondering what did you go to a public high school? I went to a public suburban high school. Okay. So what was the expectation around continuing education like? You know, what did, did what was your family's expectation of you in terms of college? Oh, my parents expected me to go to whatever college I got into and made me happy. The same went for all of my siblings. It was never an issue of whether or not we were going to college. I think if we had had other aspirations, whether it would have been towards service or toward vocations and joining a guild or something like that within that realm, that was definitely not unprecedented within my family. My grandfather was a master electrician and contractor and my other grandfather was a contractor. So they were dead and also college educated and had also served in the military. So any of those things my parents would have supported. I think they were a little bit more surprised when I wanted to go on to medical school, not because they didn't think I could do it or I shouldn't do it as far as being a passionate and appropriate human being to be in that kind of interaction with a vulnerable person. I had been serving as an EMT in my community. I'd been involved in all kinds of extracurriculars and I'd studied engineering with a focus on medical devices up till that point. I think they were more concerned with, will this make you happy the way being a physician has turned out to be in the current climate, that it isn't necessarily the secure position, that it isn't necessarily the comfortable position, that it isn't necessarily the place where you have as much power and less bureaucracy than you might in other careers. And I think they were a little apprehensive at first, but still fully supportive of me going and of me going through the application process and were thrilled as when I got in. You know, what mother doesn't want to say, my son or my daughter, the doctor. (laughs) I mean, I like to joke back then. I said, you know, you probably look at me and you realize I don't want to be referred to as Mr. anymore, but don't worry, in three more years, you'll be able to say doctor. Well, that didn't pan out, unfortunately, and I ended up taking a hiatus from that particular set of studies. Hi, sorry. Hi. Uh, we're just taking fun looking for great shapes. Open. Okay, that's fine. You are right. Okay, thanks. All right. We can edit that out. <laughs> sorry for that interruption. That's okay. What was I saying a second ago? You were talking about medical school, that it didn't pan oh, out. Oh, yeah. So, unfortunately, that didn't... We can start from here again. Mm-hmm. I'll compose myself. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out, and I'm taking an indefinite hiatus from my medical education. But what I love is that I've had a chance to attain some of that background and then bring that into my advocacy work that I'm doing now 
and it's given me a real inspiration to say, hey, perhaps rather than being a physician myself, I can help teach physicians by listening to something like this. I can help guide people who are working with trans people all over the country and perhaps the world, and that that is an equally valid use of my time. And perhaps I can do more for a community that I'm passionate about than I can as one single physician. It doesn't mean that I couldn't one day go back to medical school and become a physician. It would be complicated and the math is simply different when you start something like that and that path older and, and later in life, but anything is possible. But I love that my parents instilled within me an expectation and my siblings as well, not just that we would get through public school and high school and go to, off to college, but that we would all have our coming of age bar and bat mitzvahs, that we would all continue in Hebrew school through our high school graduation, and that we did things that were both educational with our pursuits, but also socially minded, and that we maintained a tie to our religious background. So whatever we chose to do, and all of my siblings and I at some point or another played in the college marching band. I didn't stay in it for all four years, but my two sisters stayed in it for five each, because they went on to get extra degrees or do other projects. And we all were involved with our Campus Hillel's, the Jewish organization on campus. We've all been traveling, whether it's study abroad or going to Israel and learning more about our culture and our heritage. And we've all been socially minded as well in any number of different ways through our work and through our outside of school engagements and involvements. And I'm excited to take all of those values that my parents bashed into my head and bash them into my own children's head one day. Yeah. And like I said, my parents are nagging me for grandkids and one day I will be more than happy to oblige. And I think that I will hopefully be a lovely mommy. Definitely. Um, so what was your transition to college like from high school? My transition from high school to college, I think was very similar to a lot of other people's that all of a sudden you see this much bigger world and realize just how small all the potatoes were in your home stew. And at the same time, there was a tremendous breath of relief because of all the issues I had had in high school with being teased and this complete flip on its head, as I said, of how I was perceived as someone who was an actual perpetrator of bullying as opposed to a survivor of it. And that, like I said, by the end of my high school career had kind of been proven and disproven and thrown away, but the damage had been done to me of having that perception, then coming into a place where I literally had a fresh start. But it also gave me this time and the space to start cross-dressing and meeting other people who liked wearing women's clothing. And I felt cross-dressing at that point because that's what I tried to call it to both do it and normalize it because there wasn't even a trans presence on campus yet. I think my sophomore year, I met a freshman who was transitioning. She was probably the first other trans person I had ever met. And this was groundbreaking to me, but I watched her struggle. 
and I watched her try to be taken seriously as a girl, even by the administration of that school who didn't want to put her in a dorm room with another girl, and they ended up giving her a single room to herself for the lower price of a double room as some kind of compromise that was really just putting her off in a pen because they didn't know what to do with her. And even me, I was so proud to have a trans friend and I wasn't quite with it yet that I would say to my friends, hey, do you see her? She's trans, that's so cool when she wasn't in the room. And it was me subconsciously trying to feel out their approval, but it was coming at her expense and I felt terrible about it in retrospect. At the time, it didn't even occur to me how wrong and awful that was and I've been lucky to do a lot of personal growth through my own transition and just growth and I would never do that again but yeah it was a time of feeling out it was a time of trying to find new places for myself and I think a lot of people do I had a bit of a rough freshman year the way everybody else does because I wasn't so good on time management I wasn't out drinking and partying but I wasn't exactly the best planner and I took a calculus class that was a bit over my head, so it kind of wrecked my GPA, but I did really well second semester and brought it back up to where I wanted it to be to keep the scholarship I was offered and I was accepted to go study abroad in Europe in my sophomore year at the end of my freshman year. So I did just that and I was thrilled. Yeah. Um... So you mentioned you had kind of found community or being involved with other people who are cross-dressing. Um, does that mean that you had an awareness of any sort of LGBT presence on campus or are they different communities? Well, the cross-dressing at that time was drag performers in the LGBT group on the campus and also other friends of mine that I'd met through classes and other things like theater groups who just did costuming and cosplay, whether for Halloween or other times throughout the year for whatever project they were working on. So that gave me more access to women's clothing and it gave me a couple of places to go out. And I think it was my senior year of college actually, so well after my adjustment time, but they were hosting the campus's first drag ball and I still have a single picture from it taken on the outside of a group of about seven or eight of us who all went together. And you can tell who I am because I'm the one female clothed person wearing traditional drag around a bunch of guys in male drag or drab as it's sometimes called. And one of them, uh, Elaine, not Elaine, excuse me, Eileen. Wow, mixing up people. She was actually my date and bought me a corsage and I bought her a boutonniere and it was the cutest thing ever and it was kind of like making up for the prom I never had and you could kind of tell from me at that point that I wasn't doing this as drag for the sake of drag. I was doing this as dressing up as a woman to the extent possible to pass and be perceived as a woman. And pass is a horribly loaded word in its own sense, but that's the word that there is to explain that 
phenomena to be appearing phenotypically as a female and it was just a burden lifted off me and I still wasn't quite ready to take the next steps and say that I am gonna give up on ever dating a straight girl as a straight boy and being happy in that way but yeah this is not going away and I still look at that picture sometimes and remember all, all of the people in that picture all eight of them are to this day my closest friends from college and I still talk to all of them regularly and see them as often as I possibly can although I think only one of them actually lives in New York so they're all spread around the country but it's just crazy that that group of people that we just had this moment of us all going to this drag ball the first one held on the campus at least as long as I can remember Maybe, God knows, the campus is 150 years old or something. There may have been one before that, but at least in the recent times, was something incredible. Were there other places you found community at college? There were for every other type of community I was looking for, whether it was theater things that I was still interested in, the short-lived experience I had for a year and a half being in the band before I realized it just wasn't the level of musician I needed to be to continue with that at a college level and put the time in that it needed when I was focused on my engineering classes. My engineering classes, of course, themselves and doing research projects. So I was finding all kinds of communities. I did try once to go to a transgender support group. This one happened to be across the river from Boston University at MIT in one of their buildings in the basement. They had a trans support, I want to say once a month, or maybe once a week group. And I went for the first time. I had asked a friend of mine where it was because I didn't want to publicize it. And you had to ask to know what the room was and the meeting time so that you couldn't really show up there unannounced. So they kind of maybe knew I was coming, but they didn't know much more about me than that because I wore this Hawaiian shirt. I mean, obviously I wasn't wearing women's clothing yet. I would never go out of the house, let alone the dorm room that way, unless it was like Halloween or to a drag ball or something. But, or Rocky Horror was the other place I went frequently. And then you could dress up in drag as well and wear fishnets or whatever else you wanted to. But this particular support group I went to presenting as a male, granted, because I that was my body assignment. And I was wearing this hat even indoors and sunglasses and a scarf trying to mask myself a little bit. I ultimately got inside, got really hot wearing all of that. So I'm like, forget this, I'm taking it off and I'm just gonna try to, I don't think I'd shaven that day. So I was kind of stubbly from the last few days of just facial hair growth. And so in this group, you introduced yourself and I don't think I listed my pronouns because I was afraid to say, oh, it's he and him, because that would mean that I wanted to be called he and him when I didn't, but I didn't want to say she and her yet because that felt to me really weird if I was looking like a man. So I think I just said my name is whatever I said it was, and we went all around in a circle, and they would say something affirming about you. Like, hey, it's nice to meet you. Thank you for coming. And by the end of the circle, as they're coming back around towards me, one of the people says, well, you look great. You look really handsome. And the next person catches on and says, yeah, you look amazing. 
And by the time it came back to me, I realized, oh my God, they think that I'm a female to male transgender person and that this is me post-transition. I don't know if I even make a convincing boy. How am I ever going to make a convincing girl? And I was so terrified from that that I honestly admit I didn't go back for another two years. So the community that I most desperately needed was the one that I took a very knee-jerk and honestly irresponsible reaction to a tiny misconception that I probably could have quickly enough cleared up. And I think I even did within the meeting itself. And by the end of it, we were having the conversations I needed to be having. But the moment I left it, it was back to, oh my God, this is just not gonna happen. And I used that probably of the beginning of one of my purge cycles and kind of the binge and purge cycle that you have with amassing female clothing. I disposed a lot of it. I just put it out of my mind for another year or so. And then it was really when I was still living in Boston after I graduated, when I started to say, hey, you know what? I'm starting to get a better idea of what's out there. I should start talking to one of the clinics here that does trans health for adults. I had graduated out of the pediatric stuff, whether I wanted to or not. And that was kind of scary because I never actually called them. And by the time I did, they're like, you're too old for us, call this person which is like, again, going back to that time bomb thing where you feel like you've missed your window. So I finally got involved with the trans clinic in downtown Boston, or kind of in the periphery, but near Fenway Park. And, you know, said, I really think this is what I need to do. I wanna start with just banking sperm so that one day I can have biological children if my partner or a surrogate happens to have a uterus. And again, that depends if I marry a cisgender woman or a transgender man, there's different permutations for how my future could go, but having my own children is something I wanted to keep an option open for. So I started doing that and figured, well, this is not changing who I am in any demonstrable way. And I was able to get a discount on it and write it off by saying that I was a volunteer EMT in New Jersey and as a first responder, I could potentially injure my genitals. And they had a discount package built in to the sperm bank that I chose for military and first responders, which was generally police and firefighters, but I was a volunteer EMT, so they accepted that and as well they should. That was not the reason I was actually doing it, but they didn't need to know that. Again, the less people knew about what I was doing as I was doing it, the better. Because plausible deniability was key. And if I could navigate and make progressive movements without breaching my plausible deniability, I was golden. And really after I started banking sperm, and actually one of the sperm bank attendants came back to me one day and said, hey, so just so you know, you're banking this amount of sperm per visit, which is not on the like pathological or not on the, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Not on the you have an issue end of things, it's within the normal range, but it's on the lower end of normal range. Would you 
want to consider talking to your doctor about testosterone supplements to boost your sperm count so that you can do better storage. And all I could think to myself was, wow, that's a problem I'm not going to solve. The last thing I want is more testosterone. If anything, I'm trying to work up the courage to go on anti-androgens and then estrogens. So that's out of the question. And I think that was kind of the point where I said, you know what, whatever I've got booked so far and just chilling, literally just chilling, is probably enough. And it's time for me to start hormones. And I think it was getting to that point and it was that conversation because I could have gone on banking sperm forever because you never know when it's enough sperm to bank. Like you don't bank just one vial because one vial is basically one encounter with an ovulating person if you use the turkey baster technique. So your chances of it latching on literally and leading to a pregnancy, let alone a viable one, is somewhere in the 20 to 30% range, they tell you. So they say about every four can work out to a, but that's not a guarantee. So at a certain point, it's like, do you need a dozen? Do you need two dozen? Who the heck knows? It depends how many kids you wanna have and just quite frankly, how lucky you are. But I had a certain number, which isn't worth disclosing. It's kind of private to me, but I said, and it wasn't a lot, believe me. It wasn't like I had 50 versus 100. It's like, do I need, you know, five or do I need 15 kind of range? And I decided this is enough and it's time for me to start hormones because I know that when I do take hormones, whether or not I stay on them, that is going to render me, at least in the short term, impotent and infertile. So it was a conversation with someone at the sperm bank that made you? I think that was the trigger, mm -hmm. but it was something I've been working up to for a year of doing the every couple weeks or months sperm bank whenever I had the time to make an appointment, go down there and do what you have to do, which is not the most, uh, it's kind of awkward, but people do it and it's what you need to do to access your sperm and you do that and you get on with your day and then you hand them the little dish and they go on their way to and stick it into the freezer. I'm sure they treat it with God knows what on the way and clean it and make it all prim and proper. But basically that was the time when I said, okay, it's time for me to try the things that are not completely independent from my body, but try the things that are reversible. And I'd already been doing some of the things that were completely reversible, like growing my hair out. Even in high school, I kind of had the Jonathan Taylor Thomas bowl cut. And it was me trying to, in college, have the, you know, boyish ponytail, which a lot of college guys do who aren't trans. But if you happen to be trans, it's a good thing, again, that you can write off as just being a hippie or a hipster, or who knows what you want to call yourself at that point. But I did it and now I said it's time to try hormones. And once I tried hormones, I started those in 2012 and I've been on them now for just about five years. I think I'll have my five year hormone anniversary coming up in June. And yeah, it was right for me. It was taking the hormones, just even the sperm banking, but especially being on the hormones. It wasn't that it made me a female instantly, but it 
abated the gender dysphoria. It said, hey, I'm dealing with this now. I'm facing it head on. I'm not repressing it yet again. I'm not going out another day as a guy and telling myself this is how I have to be. And that alone got me through the next stages. And I was taking hormones throughout the beginning of medical school when it really got to the point where in the second year of medical school, I was being confused for a woman because I had feminized myself sufficiently that if I wasn't wearing overtly masculine clothing, people weren't really sure what to make of me. They thought I was effeminate, possibly gay. I had also started getting laser hair removal on my face. And it became a point where I had become more perceivable as a female. So when I bumped that completely with a feminine hairstyle, with feminine makeup, and you know, putting on a bra, all of a sudden it was, it's Hannah. And that's how I was able to make that final leap. Now, this is my story. The milestones and the end goals are different for every trans person. Some people socially transition and ask and deserve to be respected as whatever gender they tell you they are before they take a gram of estrogen, before they bank sperm even if they never do, before they wear any kind of clothing that indicates a gender assignment or expression. But in my case, it was very much the social transition came after the buildup of freeing myself of this male part of myself and then building this female part of myself to the point where continuing to present as a male would have been almost unsustainable. I had a teacher in my medical school class, a medical school, a doctor who came up to me and kind of looked at my chest and was like, are you having cancer treatments? We just had a talk on breast cancer awareness and you've been growing breasts the last few months. Is there something you're not telling us about some medical issue you're having that's causing this? And she thought it was secondary to some kind of treatment I was having because we learned that breast growth can be a complication of hormonal issues. Not necessarily the intended effect of tweaking your hormones intentionally or the intended effect of tweaking your hormones. So I kind of had to say, let's talk about this not in the hallway. Let's go into your office tomorrow. And so I explained this to her and she's South American, has a thick accent. And I said, so you know how you were saying I was growing breasts and remember me in Halloween when I dressed up as a girl, as a Star Trek character, actually wearing the red Uhura dress. In fact, going back to my Trekkie nerdydom, I wore a red Uhura dress to medical school for Halloween a couple months prior to this conversation. And she says, oh yes, you were so beautiful. Oh my gosh, I didn't recognize you, but then I saw it and said, that's such an amazing costume. And I said, well, that's kind of the direction things are heading. She didn't quite understand. I said, that's how I identify. And this is part of the, and her jaw just dropped like in the cartoons. I never expected that. Again, her thick South American accent, I can't do justice to. And she gave me this huge hug and then all of a sudden realized that, you know, this was maybe November or December and coming back in January, the intention was to not be a male in how I comported myself day in and day out throughout the medical school. And that this was kind of her catching me and not a bad thing, but just what was happening. And that's, 
was interesting. And yeah. a little embarrassing, but at the same time, it was good to know who my allies would be. As your social transition progressed, do you have any other stories like that as you were, you know, coming out to your friends and family and everything? Oh, I could talk for hours, and I'm sure you're happy to have me do just that about all of these stories. There's countless ones. You have to be a little more specific than that in a sense, but there were the good and the bad. In that same medical school, a girl in my class, like I said, the students were generally apathetic, if not supportive of my transition, but one decided to walk up to me in the middle of the hallway and grab and squeeze my breast and start teasing me. When are you gonna get me estrogen? As if this was another drug traded on the classroom, you know, in the, in the seats like Adderall or something. Not that I ever traded it, but just I knew it was going on. And she made it out like this was some other kind of commodity, forgetting the fact that her body makes estrogen on its own, not the way mine does and I take it supplementally. But I had to go off on her and explain how completely uncalled for, hurtful, invasive, and completely unbecoming of a future physician that touch was, especially in a place where we are trained to differentiate a good touch from a bad touch and trusted to comport ourselves as professionally as possible when doing our jobs, often with our hands in very intimate ways as caregivers, as doctors. And I brought this sentiment exactly to the Dean of Students at this school, who said to me, I'll never forget, help me in understanding. How much of this are you just going to have to take as students adapt to your situation? And I was in shock, like how do you even answer a question like that? Why is it even being asked of you? Why are you being victim shamed for being sexually assaulted within these walls? None, absolutely none, and it has nothing to do with my situation. I shouldn't have my chest grabbed and squeezed if I wasn't trans, if I wasn't even a girl, if I was a boy it would still be inappropriate or to vocalize any medication I am taking for others to hear. And it was made clear to me that if I pursued this further, that maybe every other student in the class would think I was out on some kind of vendetta if I got her punished and if I pushed the issue, whether in the school or with the police, and then they wouldn't want to interact with me at all for fear that they'd be next. So even if it was justified that she be expelled, I don't know if she even got a slap on the wrist. And needless to say, she's a resident now here in this area, and I am in advocacy. And that is sometimes how the world works. And I'd like to change that. I'd like to change it for myself or at least for other people. But there's all kinds of stories with my transition and they're not all happy. The vast majority are happy or I wouldn't be here. It only takes one sad story and you're sometimes not in control of it. But on the whole, the beauty of the experience and not just of opening myself up to people in the world, but of having them open up to me in return 
has changed me as a human being. I say my gender, I didn't change. I didn't change my gender, my gender changed me. But it changes other people too, and it changes how I see them and how they see me. This is a story I'll get into that I like to call the Jewish Boston love story. Well, semi-love story. So there was once a nice Jewish boy, me, that met a nice Jewish girl at a young adult community within the Jewish auspices that specifically intended upon us meeting and hopefully one day procreating and then donating lots of money in either order, but as long as you did both. <laughs> so you're smiling. Did you ever go to Jewish stuff? Yes. <laughs> okay, so you know how those places are. <laughs> yeah. I see you grin. <laughs> so, she and I, or, well, I'll get, this nice Jewish boy and this nice Jewish girl, jumped to the punchline, the Jewish boy, quote unquote, is me, but this nice Jewish boy and this nice Jewish girl developed a bit of a rapport, and... I tried to ask her out many times, but it never really went anywhere. And it was kind of like we were friends, we were friendly, we had great conversations, we were so much on the same wavelength in terms of what we believed in and cared about. And we talked so wonderfully, even the rabbi noticed this, but I was never able to really seal the deal. It was always like, oh, our schedules don't work out, or maybe another time, and it was kind of like, and a lot of relationships like that end up that way. This didn't seem abnormal, just it happened. Anyway, the seasons changed as they always do, and it was now early spring and the Pride Parade was coming to town. And this contingent of often misunderstood, often ostracized, somewhat different from mainstream people, the Jews, made up a contingent within a larger population of often misunderstood, marginalized, and ostracized people, the queers. Because there are queer Jews, there are... And so there are Jewish contingents in queer parades, there are queer contingents in Jewish parades when they're allowed. And this was with an organization in Boston that specifically was for LGBT access to Jew or outreach to Jews and programming. And I'd been going to them for a few months, kind of like I'd get home, get dressed up as a female, and then go to their Shabbat dinner. And the other times in the month when they weren't hosting one, I'd go to the mainstream stuff, where I'd be a boy talking to girls. So I was kind of living this duality, and I get there, and I'm dressed as a female in public. This is a little before I'm on hormones, but I'm going out more and more and getting more and more comfortable, at least in short spurts, presenting myself as a girl. And who do I see there? The other nice Jewish girl. So it turned out that, you know, nice Jewish girl number two, or nice Jewish girl original, like nice Jewish girl, happened to be interested in other nice Jewish girls. And this was her first time coming to the parade or any of the LGBT programming with this other Jewish group. And nice Jewish boy actually identified as nice Jewish girl as well. And this was her first time at the Pride Parade. So there was kind of this mutual, what the hell are you doing there? But at the same time, in light of new information that we both had about each other, 
Take a wild guess what the first thing I did was. I asked her out again. And it still led nowhere. But the beauty of it is that when you put out and you seek out little bits more of information on people, or a little bits more of people, and you reach a more authentic place, you can discover these points for connection that could never have existed previously. So we were both trying to feign the other person's anticipated expectation of cisgender heteronormativity, and we were both missing the boat. And then when we both realized we were actually lesbian women, it made a lot more sense both why it didn't work before and there was at least a totally different chance that it could work moving forward. And like I said, it didn't, but I gave it a shot. And I think that's the most beautiful thing that can come out of a revelation like this is that when I open up about myself, other people feel empowered. And that's why I come out here and I tell these stories over and over. And I hope to for a long, long time. I hope to not need to, but it's also a blessing and a privilege to be able to because it means they will be out there for people to listen to. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about how you, you know, you're an advocate now. That's what you do professionally. And um, I'd love to hear about you coming into a political consciousness. Like where was the first moment that you felt this need, this, you know, need to organize I think as trans people are, and I think this also applies to gay and lesbian people and any other kind of activist, honestly, that our activisms are directly tied to our personal experiences. And you start to realize as you try to do things and the walls are put up around you that they're there. And as you get more involved in any kind of organization, you start to learn how it works and you start to learn how you can impact change in that organization at any level. So why not try to suit those changes to your needs? So a great example of this was I was in medical school and I became involved with the medical school student government. And we were usually the ones who were trying to argue for rescheduling exams after snow days to give people more time or over points on questions that were ambiguous, things like that, the usual announcements, goings on, extracurricular activities. But also, I said to myself, you know, I'm trying to access transgender care, and both the American Medical Association and its counterpart, the American Osteopathic Association, as well as a lot of other non-physician bodies like the psychiatric association, sorry, the psychological association, the pediatric association within medicine, and all of these other reputable organizations have in their bylaws already passed resolutions saying that transition care and medical attention to transgender people is medically necessary. So why is the insurance that my school offers me coming with a line item in the exclusions that says that we do not cover gender-related care for transition, whether medical or surgical. And this was a question I brought up and I said, well, if I'm gonna be making resolutions to this organizing body, why don't we make a resolution saying that we should heed our own bylines and by, sorry, heed our own bylaws 
that say this care is medically necessary and thus any school that is affiliated with this medical body or accredited by should provide inclusive health insurance to its students, its faculty and physicians, as well as its residents and their partners, spouses, and children. And as you build out each of those circles, it becomes lots and lots of people that would then have this, because you don't know who's transgender, but you know if you have enough people, somebody has a transgender child, somebody has a transgender spouse, or somebody is transitioning themselves. And here is a great way to respect our medical ethics and our pledge to do good and to expand our capability to help more people. With the existing precedent, we already have that this care is necessary by requiring our insurers to follow suit and to cover this care so that we can provide the best possible care we can with lots of supporting evidence as to why this is useful, why this is not cost ineffective, especially compared to the comorbidities of depression, anxiety, and anything else that happens from not transitioning when you are called to that within yourself. So that's one of the first places I started becoming an advocate. And the first time I presented the resolution, it wasn't quite perfectly written. And it was something that I was really the only one standing up for, and it was basically torn apart. But at the same time, nobody else in my medical school was really putting up any resolutions at all within the body that applied to all of the medical schools. So even just having a resolution, even if it wasn't a good one, was still a step that was very well received at the time by my faculty. They were proud of me for like stepping up and doing something, even if they didn't quite realize it applied to me yet. And while the first time I did it, it didn't go too well, what came from it is two other students from a different medical school said, hey, we love this. Can we take a stab at it? They rewrote it from the ground up, put all kinds of extra sources and footnotes into it, and then we could have up to five, so we had two more co-sponsors on it from two other schools. So all of a sudden, it became this four-school, five-person team effort, which is exactly what they want to see. And then all of us were coming together and working on this, and we actually passed part of it. It still got bogged down in a lot of procedural things, and I'm not happy with the outcome that didn't have as much teeth on it as I wanted. They kind of passed the part that said we should explore this, but not the part that said, and we're going to set a goal for ourselves to actually do anything, which is kind of like how politics works. And that's where I started to learn a bit more about the persistence of it. And that really never left me to the point where as different votes came up, as different political things entered the national conversation about use of bathrooms by transgender people, athletics, everything else, especially when they hit my own high school, I said, I need to be involved with this. I owe it to my previous, my older self to be there, to be part of this, to create a newer environment for the kids who are going through this now, because I found out there were three transgender people 
in the same school, in my school, myself included, at the same time, and none of us knew anything about ourselves, each other. And two of those three of us are no longer welcome in their parents' households. And two of those three moved out to the West Coast for that reason. And that puts me kind of as the lucky one in three. And I don't like those odds for youth growing up today. Because especially when our government, when Donald Trump says, oh, well, this is actually a state's rights issue. I'm repealing the federal government guidance by Barack Obama. It's not just becoming a state by state issue or a zip code by zip code issue, as conservatives want to write it off as, we'll do what works for them in any given municipality. It becomes a household by household issue, living room by living room. And when you have blanket policies in place that affirm trans existence, it gives kids who are in places where their parents don't want to believe in this at first a leg to stand on. It tells them they are real, they are loved, and that if you bring this out to the community, they will help you get through it and they will help your parents get on board too. The opposite is basically sanctioning abuse. It's saying that the gender of your child is within your domain to control as a parent the same way their curfew is or whether they take piano lessons. And it's not within your prerogative, let alone ability to control, just as it wasn't when they came out. And that's what I'm all about teaching is that you should be excited to have a little boy or a little girl when they come out. I'm not trying to deconstruct gender. I'm just trying to add on that if that gender happens to change or evolve when your child is five years old, is 15 or is 50 years old, well, that's beautiful too. And it doesn't make you a bad parent. It makes you the best kind of parent there is. So what kind of work did you do at your old high school? So when I came back to my old high school about a year ago, they were just starting to have conversations on implementing a transgender affirming policy that would support the rights of trans students to be referred to by their appropriate and identified and requested name and pronouns on both within the classroom and to a certain extent on documentation such as like a school ID card, to play on the athletic teams that corresponded with their identity, and to be in all other ways considered within that gender identity when it came to restroom use and any other place in which the school was gender segregated, locker rooms, etc. And there are places where that comes up, and then there are places where gender is not an issue anymore. Like anybody can join the marching band, for example. So this was a tremendously beautiful thing, and it went a step further to say as well that the school is in the business of providing the best opportunities and the best environment for the student. There could be circumstances where the parent not being brought into this situation appropriately could be harmful to the child. So it was basically saying that it leaves administrators and faculty discretion on working with the student rather than immediately reporting back and saying to the, to the parent, hey, I met with your student, they are doing this, and it, or whatever it was, like, you know, if your student cut class, 
they're going to tell the parents immediately. If a student comes out to you as trans, they wanted to say, well, we don't necessarily want to tell the parents this immediately if that's going to pose a risk. So they wrote into it protections to say that the same way if a faculty member found out that a student was sexually active in any way, they could guide them to help that was within a protected class of information separate from what a parent would immediately find out. And that was a beautiful thing that a lot of people thought was usurping parents' rights and some kind of board of educational activism, but really it was doing the best thing by the kids. And so I was there speaking out about that and was talking with elected representatives as well as with the community. I hosted two community forums on gender identity, basically telling a lot of the same story that I'm telling right now. For anybody in the community who wished to come, I actually wanted to host it at the high school. The high school said, well, we really can't do it at the high school, not because you're an alum and would generally not be you know, invited to speak here, but we don't want to offer a space for you and then get criticized that we're not offering space to somebody who opposes you, even if we're fully behind this. We want you to do it in town. So I asked the ambulance corps I used to work for if I could use their boardroom for this forum, and they were happy to have us there. They host meetings there all the time for different organizations, and we're not in the way of the garage where the rig is, so everything was fine. And people showed up, and we talked about these issues, and I broke them down as best I could. And I explained how this helps students, how this doesn't hurt parents, but how we have to understand that within this is the spectrum of parenting that comes with any other kind of issue a student could have. And I do not call being trans a disability, but with students who have special learning needs, there are different ranges of places parents can be from well, okay, school, do what you think is best, to you're not doing enough, here's how to do the best thing for my child, to my child's totally fine, and I'm not going to accept that he or she or they need some other kind of intervention. And that can often stalwart a number, or be, uh, can often stall a number of kids from getting the care they need. And Parents, likewise on trans issues, can be anywhere in that place, and a policy by a Board of Education has to incorporate those contingencies that protect the child because not every parent is going to be there for them. In fact, we have plenty of precedent of parents who will push them out, even within our own district. So that's what I was there to speak about, and the reason this became so big, in a sense, was that this was a relatively affluent school district in a major media market. And even though this had been in conversation for a while before it was brought to public forum, it was one of the first schools in our area that was working on this issue directly after the passage of North Carolina's HB2 bill which was the one that is supposed to designate the use of restrooms by birth certificate designation in public buildings and also limits the state from having different municipalities enact their own LGBT affirming protections and anti-discrimination clauses. So with the confluence of the timing plus the proximity to the New York market, 
this became a very large story within this media market and to a certain extent around the country of just how it would play out. It was neither the first district in New Jersey to do this nor the last since, but it was a pivotal one because of the timing and thus when I came out there it was good for me too as an advocate because I said I'm loyal to my school. I've been coming back here throughout my adulthood whether to see the musicals that my friend who was in high school with me actually came back to direct over the past few years, whether it was the decade I still had a sibling in the school, so I was going to band performances and choir and graduation ceremonies and all of those things, whatever the things were that I was doing at the time. And I said at these Board of Education meetings that the students who are trans in the school now, who've just spoken to you, have come up and addressed this community with a grace and a distinction and a poise that is beyond their years and a testament to the amazing educational opportunities that this district offers and just how well you train us for the world beyond these doors, but they should not have to expose themselves to this themselves to this level of scrutiny and quite frankly vitriol. People going up quoting Bible verses, saying we're all sinners and that God created male and female divine and all of these things that sounded more reminiscent of the Scopes trial and the attempt to ban evolution from the public school than they do of a modern debate and discourse over a Board of Education policy. And I tried to bring that out and say, hey, look at me. I'm an alumna of this district who has successfully transitioned, albeit later in life, because it wasn't an option as it is for these brave kids. But I'm a little bit older, arguably more mature, and I've got nothing to lose. So come talk to me and I'll tell you all about this. And people in the community did, and so did every major channel, ABC, NBC, Fox, CBS, and Telemundo. I even got a shout out by name on the Howard Stern Show when they went through the news roundup. <laughs> so it's quite an introduction to activism. Exactly, and I said, you know, I want to keep this up. I actually went down to North Carolina as a field organizer for the 2016 presidential election as well as the down-ballot races. I was based first in Raleigh-Durham and then in Charlotte. And I said, I'm a transgender woman. I want to be sent to the front lines. And I was promoted when I got down there to become the statewide LGBTQ constituency organizer, liaising between the campaign and some of its allied nonprofits and trying to engage and lean in a little bit harder on anybody I could to do a little more to explain just how important this is. I said quite simply, the future of coming out depends upon who we vote in. And we have this chance right now to either stand up resolutely against hatred, bigotry, ignorance, and quite frankly, the subjugation and disgusting, awful, harassing treatment of women, even cisgender women, at least by the presidential candidate, I like to make the point that the 
things that North Carolina was accusing transgender people of doing in bathrooms, our presidential candidate was bragging about having actually done. Going into women's changing rooms without permission or any reason to be there, grabbing people by their genitals and every other imaginable thing that he was quite happy about. And I won't say his name because I'll leave that for the listeners in posterity to uh, pick up the pieces on, but I don't think it will be that hard. But the same thing went for the down-ballot races too, especially the governor who we were able to bring over to the Democratic ticket with someone who had vocally affirmed his support for trans rights and equality. And that was an amazing thing to be part of, to just have those conversations there on the front lines with as many people as possible. It wasn't an official campaign event, but while I was in North Carolina, I was invited by a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist to speak from experience as a transgender patient to a panel of mental health providers for the active duty army. Now the army only recently made it no longer an immediately dischargeable um, situation in being trans. It used to be that if you were trans, it was considered a paraphilia and a medical exemption. So you could be court-martialed with the result of a dishonorable discharge if you were transitioning or even caught considering it. It was not applicable to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. It was in a separate part of military code. So when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted and open gay and lesbian service was put out, trans issues were still not addressed. But only about a year ago in May, did they finally say, well, this can no longer be the singular reason that you are discharged from the army if it comes out, which has allowed a lot of open service members and current service members to transition with the de facto approval of their individual COs throughout the different branches and within their specific assignments. So it's kind of a gray area where it's happening now and the military wants to train its providers on how to care for these people because it can. So I had this beautiful distinction of being one of the very first trans people to speak out to the army on these issues and to talk about how this is just one part of ourselves and I never got to serve because it wasn't something that was available to me, at least I felt, given the way the standings were and the risks that I faced. But some people took that chance anyway and now I have this meager little chance to serve the people who are serving me. Oh my gosh, and that's what they needed to hear in so many ways. And of course, I made a lot of jokes. It happened to be that this was the training center, Fort Bragg, where the Army Airborne works. So I said that all of my transgender jokes are kind of like paratroopers. Most of them land. And I sincerely apologize if they don't, but I got a good laugh out of people and I really tried to keep it upbeat and said that you can be trans and funny, you can be trans and thrive, you can be trans and a kick-ass soldier, quite frankly. And I know a few of them personally. So I think political activism, even when you can't be political, I mean, they would not have let me in that base at all if I said, hey, I'm here with the Hillary campaign or the Democratic Party, but I came in as me and in a different capacity and was still able to impart 
not so much a political value, but a human perspective. And when you appreciate people for who they are, then the politics fall into place. Because up close and personal, I'm a little bit cuter and a lot less threatening and way harder to deny than whatever hypothetical you have built in your mind of what a transgender person is. The things that you're worried a person will do by putting on a piece of women's clothing to walk into a bathroom, all of that's already illegal. And it doesn't mean it stops people from doing it, but it doesn't mean they fall under protection of being transgender if they do, or they can't be prosecuted by other laws if they do something. What it does is takes another class of people which has no evidence of being harmful and isn't what you think it is in the first place and puts an undue burden upon us. And then you bring back to say, is it really about the bathrooms? Which is the exact same argument you can make in the Jim Crow era when there were other signs on bathrooms that designated who could use which bathroom because a certain class of people, a certain race in this case were deemed to be threatening or perverse or pose a risk to those of a different group of people. And I talked about this yesterday in high school and the girl who asked me the question said back, just yelled at the top of her lungs, that's bananas. I was like, yeah, exactly. My point is it's bananas. We think about it now, but people thought about this very seriously back then. But the important point to remember is it was never about the bathrooms. It was only about the bathrooms to the extent that if you can't use a bathroom safely or comfortably, then you're not going to go to that building. Whether it's your municipal town hall, whether it's your school, whether it's the hospital, and it's going to keep you out of public life, which is going to make it harder to get education, harder to get a job, and harder to be a productive member of society. And if that conforms to your worldview where you're seeing only fish, that's great, but that's not really fair to the people who aren't fish or the people who aren't within your worldview. And that's what discrimination is all about. That is the essence of discrimination and why we enact laws to try and protect the rights of minorities. So it all ties together and I try to use the history, I try to use the future and the lived examples to just talk to anybody about this. I say, you know, that it Asserting our own and ensuring others' freedom of expression is perhaps the greatest expression of freedom there is. That this is what we, as Americans, as patriots, are supposed to be out there doing, especially in this country that was created by a ragtag band of people who didn't fit in elsewhere, and generally speaking, does better every time it brings in more people. And then I can use my voice that I maybe have honed in trans issues to talk about immigration, to talk about religious freedom, to talk about women's issues. And it all ties together in just a, what kind of world do I want to create? Do I want to accept traditional definitions or define traditions? Yeah. I kind of want to just end, but I have more questions. How are you feeling? I'm doing okay. Do you want to take like a minute or two break? Yeah, let's and then take we... a break. Yeah, that sounds great. So I've probably been talking for like almost an hour now. Yeah. Okay, so we took our break. Um, so we're back. 
And I wanted to ask Hannah about your introduction to the Trans Lifeline, which you talked about a little earlier, um, if you were comfortable speaking about that. Yes, so the Trans Lifeline was a really interesting experience to be on. I found out about it through a friend of mine who was transitioning, who I met at the Philadelphia Transgender Health Conference, who had been in touch with its founders, a couple who at the time were living out west and have since moved to Chicago. And it was a really exciting idea to create this listening and crisis hotline for and by the trans community. And I came in at a very early stage in it when it was still in its infancy, starting to go online and was one of the first batch of operators who were trained and I later took on roles in both being a call operator and also coordinating other operators, in fact, also training other volunteers myself. So I started to develop some of the early programming and materials with which to train people. And it's very challenging when you have no professional credentials yourself, which isn't necessarily the biggest issue, that people assume that if you're a social worker or you're a psychologist, you just have some innate ability to do this, when in reality it's about can you compassionately discuss these issues and how you address them. But the bigger problem was not my lack of credentials so much as the fact that we were trying to train, cram a lot of training into two hours by video conferencing with a group of people and have them ask questions and feel comfortable to take on these anonymous calls with people from anywhere in the world, potentially at their worst possible moments. And the calls we got were not all crisis calls with imminent threats of self-harm. It was people asking for resources, people asking for what to do in XYZ situation that came up, how to come out, or even just having someone to talk to. And I think what it gave me that was humbling in the experience was a chance to hear so many different stories in a way that you will never tell them to another person you actually know to hear them anonymously because that person knows that I don't know anything about them that they don't offer. You know, I generally ask, can you give me, you know, just a general location that you live in, like a city or a state, so I can paint a bit of a picture and just how old you are by their own self-description. And I'm sure people lied about it too, but I probably had people calling the line from maybe ages 10 to well into their 70s. And... For some of these people, it was the first time they were ever talking to another transgender person. For some of these people, it was the first time they were ever enunciating these issues. And I would ask them, what pronouns do you like to hear? What name should I call you? And on that line, you could be any name you wanted. I took on a different name myself, actually. I didn't want to be bringing with me the baggage of Hannah Simpson that maybe people knew outwardly and could look up and associate with myself on the line. So I actually used my middle name and I'd say Trans Lifeline, this is Elsie speaking. Can I ask what name I can use for you? 
hi there, so-and-so. And I would teach people to say it in just that way and to leave as many doors open, as many avenues as possible for people to express themselves because at the end of the day, that's what our line could be a platform for. We couldn't always provide help directly. Sometimes I was able to go the extra mile and like I mentioned, I could bring that person into an email address that I set up to communicate that was separate from all of my others so they couldn't start using it at random times to reach out to me and make me into a care provider that I didn't have the credentials or the boundaries established to take on. But at the same time, I could link them to other resources. For example, one person I talked to before we started, one person I talked about with you briefly before we started recording was an individual youth in Canada who needed Mandarin speaking resources or Mandarin language resources or people who spoke Mandarin because he was a first generation individual in this country and whereas he spoke English natively, his parents struggled with it. And sure, he could translate anything from English, but that provided a barrier where when he was translating it, his parents maybe didn't want to hear it as much or didn't think it was as authentic as if it's coming out of the mouth of somebody in a language you understand. And especially when you're coming from a traditional household that has certain cultural values that your parents are trying to instill within you and believes in honor and maybe doesn't see transition as an honorable thing, if you can come in there and use those words and know that culture and say, actually, I am here to honor your child, they are so honorable that I sent somebody all the way from America to come to your city in Canada or to voice and or to video conference in with you because I want you to hear this in a way that's comfortable for you and to come and bring this to your level. That's a beautiful thing and it gave me that chance to do. And I think the problem with a lifeline like that at the same time is that while it offers a lot of opportunity for that, we also have to be careful to not bring our own biases into it. And that was something I worked hard to train people on as well. To say that when you're listening to a caller on the lifeline, you can't assume they have the same concerns, the same access, or even the same fears that you might. As trans people, we can be afraid of going to the doctor, even if we're out. We can, because you had to be out to be on the line, generally speaking, that was one of our requirements, is that if you weren't living out, you really couldn't help people come out to the same extent. It's just one of our baseline if you're on this, you're identifying yourself as a trans and non-binary person by your own self-admission. And that was part of our criteria for our operators. So to say that you have to broaden your own perspective and enter their world to a certain extent, that we, even if we're out, might feel uncomfortable calling the police, might feel uncomfortable going to a doctor's office but we need to express and convey all of those options to this person who might see those things differently. Like if I were to suggest, have you considered going to a doctor? 
And then can I help you find a doctor that will help you through this in the safest way possible, rather than kind of keeping a preconceived notion in our mind that no trans person will ever find a doctor that affirms them just because we ourselves haven't. Or it took us a while and we're seeing it from their perspective. And we're seeing it from their perspective going back to our own beginnings where it was a struggle maybe for them, it won't be. Mm -hmm. So it was really a chance for me to teach these things, not just how to embrace transgender identity, but how to help others. And that's, to me, such a beautiful and important thing that I've had a privilege to do. I am a big advocate for everyone to give as much opportunity to give as many chances for their family and their loved ones to come around, to open up, to become less closed off to the world. I know it takes time, but I say we owe this to ourselves and we owe this to the next generation that if my siblings were not accepting of me, which they are, but if they weren't and they didn't want me to be as close with their children one day as their aunt, that it is my job to be as present as I can and to keep giving them that chance so that if one day in one of their families someone comes out, someone expresses themselves differently, that there is not a chance that child will experience the same hate that and the same absence that this family may have had in our own generation, that we owe it to them to create a better future, to teach them to be different than their elders as best we possibly can and to never rule anything out. I, I tell a story about this as kind of a parable. There was a neuroscientist, and this is all true, by the name of Eric Kandel. And he was a graduate level neuroscientist, maybe already a doctor, and he said, I want to study the brain. I want to study how people learn, adapt, and react differently to new situations. And he said, I want to do this on the sea slug. Now, if you've never heard of a sea slug, you can look it up here in the library. It's under aplasia. It's basically a snail without a shell that does everything you'd think a sea slug would do except less. But it has this one hole, which everything comes in or out of, called the siphon, and it has some fluffy gills that it uses to get oxygen from the water. And if you poke on the siphon, or maybe you poke on the gills, if you poke on the siphon, the gills kind of attract on these sea slugs, and maybe it's a mechanism that makes it a bit smaller and harder to eat. It's hard to say what a sea slug thinks because it's a sea slug. And actually that's exactly what the people who were looking at this research proposal by Dr. Kandel said, you know, if you wanna study the brain, pick an organism that has one, right? So he went on with his experiments. He set up rows and rows of sea slugs and loads and loads of little fish tanks. And he would poke them with sticks and shock them with electricity. Hi. Hi. Are do, we, we, do we still have the room? 
No, we have a meeting at three. A meeting at three? Okay, so we're out of time. Oh, um, I'll finish the story then and then we'll... Yeah, well, it's 3 p.m. now, so they might want us to leave. Um, it's up to you. What do you want to do? I can finish it in like three minutes and then that'll be... Okay, yeah, so let's let just... Me finish that. Yeah. Is it still recording? Yeah. So he poked them and shocked them with electricity. And sure enough, found that if he did this in specific intervals, he could change the outcome of whether or not the gills would retract. And he actually proved the foundations of how the brain learns and rewires itself at the neuronal level to create new patterns of behavior. So what did he get for this trouble? Just a little Nobel Prize in medicine. And the moral of this story that I tell over the lifeline to young trans youth and in person when I'm mentoring is that it has been scientifically proven that a sea slug can learn, so can your parents. You just have to prod them hard enough, shock them long enough, and wait around to see what happens. That's awesome. Thank you so much. We're just finishing. Thanks. Um, I'm sorry this is so 